Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney. And we're Slapping Glass. Welcome to Slapping Glass, where we explore basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the newly hired head coach at California Maritime Academy, Tim Bross. Coach Bross is here today to discuss his first months of taking over a college program, building an offensive and defensive system, a freewheeling, overrated or underrated segment, and in the last 10 minutes, Coach Bross gives a powerful and important account about resilience, perspective, and the greater good of coaching. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. Follow us for daily detailed breakdowns on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, and subscribe to our Sunday morning newsletter where we consolidate and break down much of the best that we've seen from around the world of basketball. And now, please enjoy this entertaining and powerful conversation with Coach Tim Bross. If you could take us back a couple months when you got the call that you were going to become the new head coach at Cal Maritime, can you take us back to that moment? Yeah, I'll never forget. It was October 6th. Um, I got an unexpected call from my AD. At the time, she wasn't my AD. She was the AD at Cal Maritime. Uh, And she offered me, you know, my first head coaching job. And, you know, I became emotional almost immediately. You know, what it was not unlike, you know, the birth of one of my children, (laughs) to be honest. I mean, because really it felt like it felt like rebirth uh, for me professionally. Uh, My career had had taken a couple of twists and turns. And, you know, Karen Yoder called me on October 6th with a a job offer for the, the head men's basketball position here. I broke down in tears. I was on a walk about a block or two from my house. We wrapped up our phone call. I went directly home, kissed my wife and kids, loaded up our SUV and drove directly to Vallejo, California. (laughs) And just for reference for people listening to this, what is a six, seven hour drive? Yeah. Yeah. It was about six and a half, seven hours. On the uh, drive up, I'm like listening to Dropkick Murphys. I'm shipping to Boston. Like I'm fired up. Like I'm calling people like left yeah. and right. Like not, not even aware of who I'm calling. And then like I do remember though the next morning, Dan, you and I talking, and like in those moments during that morning, it hit me. Like, oh, I'm a head coach now. <laughs> you know, right. it has been a whirlwind. Yeah, I would say the most challenging aspect of all this is just being away from my family. You know, and that's part of being a coach, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of not unlike being representing the military. You know, I don't, I I know that that's sort of a a tired comparison and I don't mean to say that what we do as coaches is as important as defending our country, but like the moving around and being away from family. And, um, you know, right now I, I kind of see that comparison because in the last, you know, 45 days I've, I've seen my wife and kids like three times. So, as someone who's been a part of uh, multiple transitions throughout my 10 year career, 
um, who's been on a lot of different staffs. Like one of the most important elements in all of this was addressing the, the people piece, like the, the players in the program, the assistant coaches in the program, the folks on the ground at, at Cal Maritime and, and making them feel heard. Because I know that when a new head coach comes on board, sometimes the onboarding process or the, the move or th- those things tend to overshadow what really makes this work, which it is the people. So developing relationships with, you know, my players first and foremost was, was my, my top priority. And from there, I've been trying to develop tactical systems, fundraising, recruiting, and then run the program on on a day-to-day basis. You've been a part of many programs and you've, you know, had so many different responsibilities. As you had a chance to learn from these programs and what are some of the things that you want to apply to yours or some things that, that you want to take with you and some things like we're never doing this? Yeah, it's a really cool question. I, you know, I, I, I'm very fortunate that I've worked for so many different people and styles, guys with different strengths, and, and, and I think I've been able to borrow a little bit from, from each place. So like at Hawaii Pacific from my first boss, Darren Vorderberg, like I just learned to work hard. If you're going to make it in this business, it's just going to be good old fashioned hard work. And he was a really hard worker. You know, he, he was a, a distance runner in college. Like I was like, we had a lot in common in terms of our background, but also in terms of our values and that created momentum for me. Uh, my next stop was university of Hawaii and I was like shell shocked there. The amount of resources, pressure, politics, I just, I'd never seen anything like it before. In some cases, it was big time college basketball in the sense that like we would play on ESPN, like with some level of frequency. But on the other hand, I, I kind of saw, I don't want to call it a dark side, but but I saw an, another another side of the sport, I, I guess, um, you know, our, our time there ended a little bit unexpectedly. We, we'd had a really good season and, you know, our, our staff got let go at the end of the year. Uh, they brought in Aron Ganat, who's a tremendous guy and, you know, amazing coach. But, but I think I, I learned a really valuable lesson there that who you, the, the people are the most important thing, right? Like it's not about being on television. It's not about, the shoes or gear that you get. It's not about how nice your office is. It really is about who you spend your time with on a day-to-day basis. And going back to Hawaii Pacific that following year, that was 2015, 2016, it was really meaningful because it reunited me with, you know, Coach V, Jesse Nakanishi, who's a really, you know, my son's godfather. I made lifelong friends there and then had an opportunity to move on to Chaminade University, where I think I was able to kind of spread my wings a little bit. You know, Eric Bovard is the head coach there. He is one of my best friends. I mean, just a an excellent coach, but a really good man. And he he allowed me to to co- like to really really experiment as a coach and run the defense. You know, coordinate recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, he he really trusted me in a way that I hadn't been been trusted before. And and something I took from him to answer your question, Pat is that he was able to instill in his players a level of confidence that I'd never seen before. Like he, he was very permissive in terms of his culture, but it, it wasn't reckless. You know, the players knew where the boundaries were and 
how it manifested on the floor is that our players just played with an unbelievable like swagger but but confidence you know and and sometimes it, it felt like we were playing a little bit too fast but you know like we did beat Cal on you know the third day of the Mount Invitational by 24 points you know and, and I think that's in large part to his tactical system but but also in in his his team culture so I, I really learned a lot from Eric um and then go, like going back to Redlands like my boss was kind of an old school guy that's been through the wars like Jim Ducey Pat he learned from my wife's grandfather Lee Fulmer the former head coach at at Redlands but yeah it just I mean he tells stories of these amazing contacts he has like with Tex Winter and Jerry Tarkanian you know like John Wooden um, right. <laughs> so, uh, he really is a wealth of knowledge and I think what I learned from from Deuce was like the instructional element of our sport which I think it's forgotten a lot especially at the division three level like I think there's a, a much higher level of coaching at this level than than at the other levels I've been to. I, I would actually say that. And, and he really taught me the importance and value of being a good teacher of the sport because I, I believe that he is he is a master. And, uh, you know, a renewed focus on that has has really served me well as you know, I enter this new experience as a head coach. Tim, in that in the recruiting process, you're very well known for being a great recruiter on the West Coast, and you've landed some guys that have become players of the year and whatnot. So I want to make sure that we mention that. How do you feel like your role is going to change now that you're a head coach? Because as an assistant, like you and I would talk, you're calling guys, you're prospecting, you're finding them, but ultimately the head coach is you know closing the sale or, or the final decision, and now that's you in this seat. How are you viewing that now from your spot? It's an excellent question because I'm still I'm still learning, you know, to be honest with you. Um, I was very aggressive as an assistant. Like, you know, if I was at a level that allowed in-person contact, yeah, I had no problem with, you know, getting in the face of a recruit, introducing myself, like getting the ball rolling on recruiting right away. You know, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm saying that's what I did as an assistant coach. I will tell you that already as a head coach, I have become well acquainted with how that could be problematic, right? Like you're the head coach and you come on that strong. I think it creates a set of expectations that could be unrealistic. So I'm learning how to delegate a lot more. Um, I'm learning where to direct my focus. I'm learning that, yeah, the, most head coaches take on that, cl that closer role for a reason. So I think I'm just being a little bit more judicious. Um, but like, at my core, I am who I am, you know, and, and it's really important for me, not only as a coach, but as a person to just be true yeah. to myself. And, um, you know, I, I want the guys that I recruit to, to see that. So I think there's certain like actions and behaviors that I've certainly dialed back, but I, I've tried to just remain yeah. the same person. Um, but, but again, like empowering my assistants to, to get out and beat the streets and make contacts and, and lay the groundwork, um, has really, you know, been something that I've tried to, to stress and, and I've been very pleased with, with our results. We're, we're probably a little bit behind with how late we got started, but I, you know, sure. we're getting better every day. <laughs> we're trying to. How are you viewing your youth as a head coach, as an advantage in the recruiting process or do, are you trying to feel like you have to 
make up for it? Or where do you, where do you lie on that? I don't know. I, you know, it's funny. Like I, I went to the grocery store the other day and I'd bought a bottle of wine or something and I got carded and I feel great. <laughs> I felt great about it. Like, you know, is that a sign of getting, getting old? Like when you feel great about getting carded uh like i went and got my hair cut and my barber was like oh man your hair is so full and thick on the sides and then he got to the top he's like and i'm not gonna be able to take as much off the top this time you get a little <laughs> so i you know uh I, wait till you guys start turning it over that'll really yeah, yeah thin it out yeah yeah no doubt i mean i appreciate you describing me as, as youthful uh although i feel like every day i'm getting a little older um I think that uh, youth is really a state of mind. I mean, uh, and I, I try to really embrace that. This is fortunately an activity that that keeps us young, right? Not only are we exposed to the latest trends and music and movies and television shows, but we're like constantly surrounded by this just amazing youthful energy. And I try to really, I do try to embrace that. You know, I think that at least at the college level, the, the kids that we have the opportunity to work with, like they're so full of life and, and it's, it's, I mean, it's really fun. It's, it's really cool. So I think just maintaining that connection is something that, that I've always strived to do. You know, I, I really try to dive into my relationships with the various recruits that, that I establish relationships with and like peel back the, the layers of the onion and, and try to understand, well, you know, what, what does it mean to like buy sneakers online? Like, like, how does that look? Like I, I talked to a kid who was like making a lot of money off of purchasing sneakers online. And he like explained to me like his process, he had bought these things called bots. Like you buy these like yeah. programs that basically run algorithms so that you can buy shoes faster. And it's like, it essentially became like a, like a, a business, small business for him. I learned so much about like, sizes that are like priority sizes for people to buy like colorways like the, you know the coolest jordans like that keeps me young because that's what you know young people think about and do and and i'm, I'm yeah. just really into understanding what makes people tick and and because my clientele you know happens to be young people i think it allows me to you know have that sure to have that useful if you'd like, we'd uh, like to get a little tactical, technical for a bit and dive into, you know, you right now are coming up with and developing your own personal brand offensively and defensively. I'd like to start with the offensive side of the ball. How are you right now as you're setting up your program and your systems? Who are the teams that you're looking at? What are the kind of, what are the actions and the overall offensive philosophy that is attracted for you and you know how are you going about kind of trying to implement that yeah you know i think it's come down to two things for me first of all a team's production um and then and then second of all like my my access to a, a given programs in my relationship with cal baptist i had the opportunity uh earlier in the fall to study them um and and i, I you know i alluded to adam jacobson and, and you know his being willing to to kind of help me out and act as a sounding board. So they're, they're a program that I've, you know, really taken a close look at, you know, they well, last year had a 20 win season. They've had unprecedented levels of production and success as a transition school uh, from division two to division one. Uh, they're, they're in the whack, of course. So 
you know, they've produced and, and I have access to them. Dan, I mean, you're someone else that's been involved in, in this dialogue and, you know, your reputation speaks for itself and our act, you know, my access to you does as well, fortunately. So you've been tremendously helpful to me, Charleston Southern, another program that, you know, I have a close relationship with. And then of course, my former boss at Chaminade, who I, I Eric Bovert, I do believe is one of the sharpest offensive minds in basketball, I mean, he he worked for Jim Crutchfield at Nova, Nova Southeastern, and and you know, Coach Crutchfield is like one of the more studied offensive man uh, coaches like in the nation. Like I think Eric Spolstra yeah. spent like an off season or some time w- with them. Like Eric Bovard is a part of that tree. That's that's a big deal. You know, Eric Eric has given me a lot of really good advice, and I think the first piece of advice that has always stuck with me is you have to develop a tactical system that complements your personnel, mm. you know? So the, the first things first, we're like analyzing our guys and like, what do we got? You know, who can do what? Um, normally that would take place in person. It's just not realistic this year. So it's been a lot of watching film calling around, talk, talking to the players themselves and, and just trying to uh, Established, like who are we who have we been the program here has been extremely successful brendan rooney and brian rooney have, have elevated this program and you know i'm fortunate to follow in their footsteps because we have a foundation you know so now it's just it's been a matter of matching an offense with what we have currently and then finding compatible defense because you know that's that was a lesson i learned at chaminade like we had more of an up-tempo offense but you know, I was interested in installing a slow it down half court defense. And it just created some, I think, looking back on it, I blame myself for it perhaps creating some tempo issues. You know, fortunately, we had success and my boss never voiced his displeasure. But like, as I reflect uh, on that, you know, I, I do see the value in in having systems that match. So I really tried to to be cognizant of that. And, you know, I think there's an order of operations uh, to, to the development of your tactical systems as well. I mean, like you could have the greatest defense in the world, but you're probably not going to shut out another team and, and win the game. You know, like you have to score points to me, like you have to have an attack plan. Right. And um, that that's been my top priority. Like, what are we going to run? You know, and, and I think addressing current trends, not only in professional basketball, but prep basketball has been something that I've, I've looked at. Like, how are our high school players playing? What are they doing? You know, like, is it worth deconstructing their habits and re-engineering them just so it like fits what I want to do? Or does it make sense to take what they already do and help it fit with what we can do to win games? So I think, you know, right now, Basketball is just more of a free-flowing, uh, up-and-down, ball-screen-centric game. So why then would we want to, you know, look at exclusively running a passing offense like a Triangle or a Princeton? Or like, there's nothing wrong with, with those offenses, believe me. But you know, I don't, I don't claim to be a David Fisdale or you know, like a Cody Topper. I'm not a savant. Like, I, I'm not going to X's and O's my way to a victory yet. I don't think. You know, so I, I, I kind of have to take a holistic approach, at least as it relates to tactics and, and figure out like, how can we get, how can we create common ground so that we can all have success? I want to ask a follow-up about 
what you're seeing from the prep player levels as far as what are they being taught or what is yeah like you said they're kind of being groomed with and what do you think is being under taught though at that level that you know you getting these guys in and that you got to like start from the ground zero building with them you know that's a good question i don't i don't think that any one person is under teaching anything necessarily at the prep level i just think there are a lot of different people involved in a prep player's experience probably now more than ever before right like when we were like coming up you played multiple sports in high school like you know maybe you played on one travel team maybe you went to one camp right but now it's like if you're a good player you might play for two or three different club teams you might go to five or six different camps you play one sport so there are all these different coaches and voices in the room and that's not necessarily a bad thing but i think sometimes there are players that don't know who to listen to so it's like when you're listening to everybody you're really listening to nobody yeah. right so i think the way that has been reflected on the court is that there is this more freewheeling style of of play i think there are those out there that would say like there's a l- less of a focus on like the team dynamic that you'd find maybe in australia and, and more of a focus on like isolation based basketball i don't want to go so far as to say that all i know is what i'm seeing you know when when i watch games and it's it's there's a, it's there's a faster tempo and there are a lot of ball screens you know it, it essentially like a lot of penetration based basketball so like I think years ago it was more of a of, of passing based basketball, and of course there was still driving back in the old days, and, and you know there's still passing now. But the, I'm looking yeah. at level of frequency, so um, I think there's more driving now than there has been maybe in years past, and, and the tempo is faster than maybe in years past, and there are more ball screens. So I want to make sure that when I'm developing a system, I'm developing one that allows allows for that. You know that, that acknowledges the, the backgrounds and experiences of the young people coming into this program. To the other side of the ball, defensively, I know you've done a lot of work where you've been at multiple stops on the defensive end. Can you talk a little bit about your overall defensive, I guess, just philosophy? You know, I think whatever defense you take, man, zone, press, trap, like I think defense is ultimately a lot more similar than it is different you know like basically on the strong side of the ball you have a man-to-man right and on the weak side of the ball you have a zone like <laughs> whatever you're running that that's pretty much it so I don't mean to oversimplify things but like at Redlands we were man in live ball situations so after a miss a turnover we were back to our our man defense after a, a make or dead ball situation we were pressed back to zone so you know as an outsider I, I'm sure it it sounds like and look potentially looks like, you know, is that possible? Like do guys forget, like, you know, I think if you demand of your players to, to execute a certain way, they'll surprise you with, with how well they perform. And, and we were able to routinely execute on that scheme. What I found as a coach is that as our man defense improved, it enhanced our zone defense. And as our zone defense improved, it enhanced our man defense. We did incorporate a lot of switching in our man. Um, basically, Ducey had this old saying: "If there's any glue, switch." So, like, if you if you basically hit a defender and like that, you get stuck, i.e., glue, like automatic switch. So, like that level of decisiveness, I think, really 
helped our defense a lot. And since, you know, we were switching so much in our man, it, it, it did allow our, our zone to get to the next level. So, I, you know, I'd be lying to you if there weren't times in the game where, you know, guys did get confused. Like, oh, I thought I was in a man there. Right, right. We <laughs> were in a zone. But I think as the season progressed, what we saw is it almost didn't matter after at a certain point. We taught our guys just how to play defense. And, of course, we wanted everybody on the same page. But mistakes happen. And when they did, our players learned to just play with a level of decisiveness and urgency that – regardless of what you're doing or what we were doing, it, it ended up working. I think we had one of the statistically one of the stronger defenses in the league. Um, we would bluff coverages a lot of times like Ducey would call a formation that, you know, looked like, uh, um, you know, a, a three quarter court pressure, but it wasn't like we just fall back yeah. into a man. So, you know, I learned, I learned a lot about him in regards to masking defenses. Like, the classic one, you're probably well acquainted with it. You come out and you trap the first couple of ball screens, right? And then let's say you trap the first three ball screens. Ball screens four and five, maybe you just hard hedge them. Well, a hard hedge is different than a trap. But as a coaching staff and as, you know, two guys involved in a pick and roll, it's hard to decipher that real time. So oftentimes what we found is like the, the opposing team just thought we were trapping ball screens the whole time. And if they weren't having success with it, they'd just go away from it. They're like, oh, they're screwed. You know, they're trapping ball screens. Let's run, let's run something else. So, like, look, I think that defense is about throwing fastballs, right? Like, you know what's coming. You just got to execute. Like, but occasionally a well-placed changeup, well-placed curveball, it, it can, you know, it can be a difference maker. Just a, a curiosity, and since Ducey retired, I feel like, and you're not in the league anymore, I can ask you this question, but – here we go. <laughs> well, the philosophy on zoning underneath out of bounds. Coach Ducey's philosophy, and I did grow to agree with him, was that most OBs are designed mm-hmm. to get something at the rim. So a zone addresses that, that objective by packing the paint. Um, it's funny. He would always talk about, well, every offense has these different out of bounds plays. So I'm just going to zone it. So, you know, we'll get them out of it. But what was funny is like in our pregame walkthrough, we probably spent five or 10 minutes on addressing the, you know, like the half court offense and then like probably 10 or 15 minutes addressing the OBs <laughs> yeah, right. in our zone. Right. <laughs> so it's like, coach, is this yeah. really like, <laughs> are we saving time here? Uh, right. But, you know, I, I, except for against Chapman, uh, I thought our zone, our zone OB our zone defense in OB situations was really effective, but it seems like you guys shot up that zone. I, I swear to, I swear to the high heavens that you scored like 21 points against our zone. (laughs) We, I was putting an edit together of some of our underneath out of bounds and for whatever the, the the randomization of the season, we had a lot of success against the red underneath, but a lot of times too, since you guys zone, we would just chuck it into the backcourt and then run a zone set. You know, and so that's what we wanted. That's what we, that's what Lucy wanted. So, you know, our coach would just say, I don't want to drop a bunch of sets to beat the zone underneath. I'm just going to throw it in the backcourt and run a zone half court set. Um, but anyway, maybe another podcast. Um, <laughs> Tim, sticking with the zone, you had mentioned that the zone improved your man to man defense. Yeah. Can you kind of elaborate? I mean, I'm assuming on maybe your help side, how did it improve your man to man? 
our help side for sure. But I think just conceptually, like the decisiveness, because like one thing that the guys love to talk about is like, well, he's the help, you know, like he was the low guy and I, I was supposed to cover down. Well, okay. Well, the other team just got a dunk and the low guy, the middle guy, neither of you went like, we just need somebody to go. Right. Of course, if we're in a film room, drawing it up on the whiteboard, we want the low guy to go. But like, if he doesn't go, then who's going to go? Is this about being right? Or is this about getting it done? Cause we right. just got dunked on, you know, I think uh, having a good zone just reinforced that concept of, okay, there, you know, this guy's, flashing the nail like someone has to account for that right like here's who it should be exactly but you know like someone's got to do it or else they're going to collapse us and we're we're in big trouble so like from a man perspective i i think that really benefited us because our guys just learned to apply that concept oh okay i got stuck there's glue i gotta switch you know like now i'm gonna take the roller even though we're not switching someone's got to take the roller right and then maybe when we get to the the weak side, like I can do a scram or whatever with the big and, and find somebody else. But, you know, we, I'll say this, we were fortunate to have high IQ players at Redlands and they'd been around coach Ducey's style for, for many, many years. So I'm not so naive to think that you can just come in overnight and install something like this because I don't think you can. I think it's something that's built over many months, many seasons, and certainly you have to have you have to have the right guys. You have to have the right personnel. You have to have the right skill set within your program. We just happen to have, you know, high IQ players and, and, you know, they bought into it. What was the role that communication then played in kind of changing these defenses? Obviously with the players, but then also with the head coach and to the players communicating when we're going in these different coverages. They were expected to know. Yeah. I mean, it, it was an amazing thing, but like they knew that we were in our man in live ball situations after, after misses turnovers. And they knew that we were pressed back to zone uh, in dead ball situations or after makes, they just, they knew it. And if we needed to make an in-game adjustment, because we did, we did have to make in-game adjustments all the time. Like we would talk about it and most of the guys could execute on it. And the ones that couldn't like, they just couldn't play. So they learned really quickly. Like here are the, here are the expectations and you either, you know, you're either a part of it or you're not. In terms of like the practice time, teaching these guys, you know, obviously you got to have a man, you got to know to switch. You mentioned the hedges and then the the full court press back to the zone. You know, what's kind of the time management that goes into this with your practices when you're on so limited and you also got to worry about scoring on the other end? Great question. I mean, we worked a lot. We worked almost exclusively on our man-to-man defense in practice. Almost exclusively. It, it's funny. I recently, I think three years ago, I spent an off season studying Cal Poly Pomona's um, zone, you know, cause they, they had the top ranked defense in the West region of division two. And Damian Hill was really kind and, and shared his time with me. And, you know, I had like a packet of information I'd written up, like I had a full on report, like video too. Like, and we went out to lunch and, you know, we, we talked hoops, right? We talked about his defensive system. And he, he asked me something that has always stayed with me. He's like, okay, how do you work on your man? Well, we do a shell. And then we break it down two on two, three on three, four on four. He's like, okay, so you break down your man, right? You work on specific skills out of your man, right? I'm like, oh, yeah. He's like, okay, so then how do you work on your zone? Yeah. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, we just play zone like you know, yeah. <laughs> you know, break down drills with our phone like I was like I kind of felt like a fool a little bit uh but it was like an aha moment now at Redlands 
we did not work on our zone as much in, in a breakdown sense because we just didn't need to. I mean, our guys learned how to apply these man concepts to the zone that we were running. And we ran our zone so much that they were constantly yeah. getting reps. And like we were constantly blurring the lines of man and zone so that it, w- it really just became defense. You know, it wasn't like, here's a man, here's a zone. Like, nope, it's just guys, we're just playing defense. We're going to either have one or two people guarding the ball. And then the rest are going to either be accounting for one guy or, or two guys, depending on what happens on the ball. It's pretty much that like, if you can just do that, like we're probably going to have some modicum of success. How are you approaching pick and roll defense? Probably we'll be switching one through four and then doing something with the five. You know, we, we have a five who's probably going to be better as a, a plug guy. But I, I do like to be aggressive. You know, I think uh, hedging and trapping is something we did a little bit at Redlands and, and even at Chaminade and some at Hawaii Pacific. And I'd like to incorporate that. So. I've been a part of icing the sides. I like it. I, I don't know if we'll do it as a base. You know, I, I think probably what we'll do as our base is we'll hedge, you know, cause I think it just provides a great foundation for so many other coverages. Like if you can hedge, you can probably get into a plug. Like if you can hedge, you can probably trap. Like it also teaches like that backside help too. Right. Cause oftentimes in a hedge, you get two guys to the ball and like you have to learn how to rotate. So I think it's a good teaching tool and, and a, a good like starting point for our other coverages. But when we're at our peak, I would imagine that we're probably switching one through four and, you know, plugging in the middle. What are your points of emphasis with the switch? Yeah. You know, I think switching is like, there, there's just so many angles and elements to switching, but one of the great ones that I heard in listening to your podcast was no screen, yeah. no yeah. scheme. You know, it's like obviously a counter to the switch is the slip, right? And then, you know, you get an eager guy trying to come out and and switch early and dude slips and now all of a sudden we're getting dunked on. So um, I think that's that's a huge one. Like just understanding like your responsibility is your guy. Now, once your guy gets involved in an action with another guy and and there's glue, you know, then we have to switch. But if there's no screen, there's no scheme. Yeah. To follow up real fast about the, teaching the pick and roll defense and i liked what you said about teaching the hedge as sort of like a if you call it a base but one of the things we always talked about you know here is if you just practice this sort of simple coverage earlier in the season and then all of a sudden you start getting to more complicated teams later on and then you try to all of a sudden start hedging and rotating on the backside it's almost too late where it's easier to teach the hedge or the the trap and teach all the rotations on the backside early and then the switch is a lot easier to come from so i kind of liked what you said about that was that something you would do five on five or or you're thinking drill wise like breaking it down the rotations or how are you viewing kind of teaching it yeah i have a lot of thoughts on this my first year at chaminade we were installing a new ball screen coverage and like huge point emphasis for me was like help side like the help right like who's got the role and what happens after that guy takes a role and an interesting thing happened like and I, I have the benefit of hindsight now but we were good in rotation but we weren't very good on the ball like we I we I had unintentionally sent we had unintentionally sent that message because of me that like this is how we rotate but the guys that were guarding the ball and that were involved in the primary action 
we're thinking about rotation instead of just like containing the ball, right? That's the most important thing. What is the ball doing? The rotation is the backup plan essentially. But like, if you can contain the ball, you don't have to worry about rotation, right? And then of course there's the old adage, like it's not, you know, the rotation, it's the recovery that gets you beat. So like at Redlands, we always talked about like, we don't want to be in rotation. We know how to be, and we will be if it's needed, but we don't want to be. So we would work a lot and we will work a lot on two on two, three on three ball screen coverage first, because usually it's either two offensive guys or maybe three offensive guys involved in the primary action, right? And sending the message that this is what we need to, this is what we need to hammer. This is what we need to be able, if we're hedging, like we need to turn the ball handler's direction and get him to throw back. So he's no longer in attack mode. You know, like if we're switching, then we need to get a good switch and, and, and contain the ball handler. Following up and kind of taking more of a, a global view with teaching your guys concepts, how do you feel the best way that these guys learn concepts? Deucey, like I learned so much from Deuce, but he had, he had uh, this great line that he would always say, like as it related to teaching and the doing is the learning. You can, you know, deliver a, a really heartfelt speech 10-15 minutes about defense and, and go over all the tactics and hey this is where you go this is what you do you know most guys are going to lose their interest after 45 seconds they don't care you're just wasting your breath they're learning to tune you out like just get them on the court and go this is what we're working on go and they'll, they'll be scrambling and like you know what do I do what do I do but then they do it and then eventually you correct it and, and, and maybe you watch it on film and, and you correct it again and over days and weeks and months, they learn it. But you're not going to be able to install something in one day and expect everybody to get it. You know, you have to be patient in the doing is the learning. Yeah. Well, Tim, if you're, if you're ready, we would like to uh, transition to our overrated or underrated <laughs> segment. <laughs> so overrated or underrated, the slapping glass overrated or underrated segment. <laughs> <laughs> uh it is so it, it, it it's underrated it's underrated dan i, I want to like you can hurt my feelings yeah. okay <laughs> <laughs> it's underrated baby it's underrated no it's, you know what uh, like I'm, I'm here to take sides today fellas so uh yeah it's it's underrated i think that it be, can become overrated um so i want to caution you about that yep uh, but yeah no it's it's a great segment, Thank and I think it's one that like, I, I look forward to when I listen to your podcast. Our think tank here is developing some other segments yeah. that you know, okay. we'll, we'll probably splice in and out and, and <laughs> add to the overrated or underrated. Okay. So, um, okay. Well, Pat, do you want me to? I, I have a real yeah, one go, yeah. for him. Okay. <laughs> <Go> okay. <ahead. laughs> okay. Overrated or underrated? Driving the team van. Oh, it's, it's the worst. <laughs> I mean, that's not but like, if we're just creating dialogue, I hate driving. I, and I know that I just got done saying like, I'm humble. I'll do anything like, but driving the team van is something that I will not miss if I don't have to do it. ever. <laughs> just not like it's, you know, like you have people's lives in your hands, you know, like, and, and you're trying to get ready for a game and, you know, you're looking on your phone to figure out where to go. I guess it would be horribly overrated. It's very overrated. <laughs> All right, Tim. Overrated, underrated, man-to-man full-court defense. Oh, that's a great question. Um, 
I think it's a little bit overrated. I do think it's a little bit overrated. I don't think everybody can do it. Uh, I think the guys that can do it, uh, it's a really good thing. But I think there are guys out there that try to do it and can't, and then it's a really bad thing. And uh, I'm more of a proponent of, you know, a zone pressure uh, or a zone press. Tim, overrated or underrated, the pick and roll in college basketball? I think it's underrated. I do. I think it's the most difficult action to guard in basketball. You know, I, I know that people will debate that, but I know that, you know, it's really uh, a positive thing at the professional level. And I, I believe that it is at the collegiate level as well. You know, I think that um, what we're seeing right now is a proliferation of more five out offenses, especially with, you know, how the NBA finals went this year. But you know, I think a, a well-placed ball screen, a well-timed ball screen is, is the hardest thing to guard. And for that reason, in college basketball, you know, I, I do think it's a little bit underrated. As, you know, kids come in as freshmen and you start to run the pick and roll in college, are there like one or two things that they need to be taught to like make the pick and roll more successful or help make it more efficient? I think the biggest thing is if you're involved in a pick and roll, you need to make sure that you're a threat to score just from like a philosophical standpoint, that's a message I've always sent to the guys I've coached. If you're a driver, like you need to figure out how to demonstrate your scoring ability in this pick and roll. If you're a big and and you're a roller, like you need to, you need to demonstrate how you're going to get the ball and, and score. If you're a pop, like, because that keeps the defense honest, right? Like if you're a non-shooter and, and you come off ball screens, but you don't know, how to keep the defense honest, then you you really hurt your team a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Right. So like at Chaminade, we had a young man named Austin Pope going into his senior year. He was not a great shooter, but you know, we, we helped him become a better shooter, but just constantly looking at, at different ways to make him a threat in the ball screen, you know, like different angles to set the screen at different tempos, different setups, different reads, setting the ball screen multiple times, setting the ball screen lower and lower, you know, like he became a threat. Like he was a huge reason why we beat Cal in that Maui Invitational. You know, he, he, he bought into that. So I'm a huge ball screen guy. I mean, Chaminade runs a ball screen or we ran a ball screen centric offense. We had a lot of success with it. So when I talk about being it, it being underrated, I I'm coming from that place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Overrated, underrated sideline out of bounds plays. Um, I think they're underrated. You know, I think it's fine. It's going to be tough to find good ones, but I do think that side outs are, are underrated. I know that uh, I've been beaten on a side out of bounds before, you know, uh, Matt Logie at Point Loma runs this great one that won him a game uh, this past season. Uh, it's like that Brad Stevens action rolling away from mm-hmm. the goal for the lob. You know, so I, I think that there's some really good stuff out there. But, yeah, there's some coaches that put, I would say, too much emphasis on side OBs. And realistically, there might be a side OB that's a, a you know, happens to be a critical possession. But for the most part, you're just trying to get the ball in bounds and, and get into your offense, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. But I, I do think they're underrated. I do. I think they can win you a game. Yeah, Tim, just follow up from Pat because – to further break down that question because there's the silent out of bounds where you need to score the under five seconds right. silent out of bounds or just your, you know, there's a foul and you take it out with 20 seconds. Do you see a difference of obviously you need to have some in your back pocket for the yeah. end of game ones, but just your general 
thought of just, okay, let's get it in and run a great set or try to score out of that set? I think there's so much, there's so many different factors that, you know, uh, contribute to that decision, like the down and the distance, obviously, like, you know, I plan on having like every other coach, like having various specials to use. So like, depending on the circumstances of a given situation, like, yeah, you know, we'll probably have specials out of a package, but um, I think that OB, you know, OB situations are opportunities to score, you know, so we want to definitely pursue that. We, we want the other, I want the other team to have to prepare for as much stuff as possible. I want them to be worried about that. And, and side OB is a part of that. Okay. Tim overrated or underrated the offensive rebounding free throw play. Okay. There's a story behind this. (laughs) Now coach Ducey, he was a huge free throw cross guy. So that's what you're, that's what we're referring to, right? Yes, the free throw cross. You're two guys on the lane lines and you're crossing them and, and creating, you know, contact to, to get a, a putback. Uh, we, were, we were really invested in this. We, we did this a lot. We stole this, as the story goes, from Mike Bokoski. We stole it from him. But, 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 but as Dan tells it, Bo stole it from Ducey. Is that, is that, um, well, I'm not sure what, I don't want to speak for, for coach Bukowski, but I believe coach Bukowski said he stole it from, um, in the late eighties when he was scouting a team in the, the big West. So every, everybody's stealing from everybody. Yes, exactly. Just honor among thieves. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's underrated. I love it. I don't know why more people don't do it. Uh, the free throw cross. I mean, it's, it's a game changer. Now you can get offensive fouls doing it. So you have to teach it properly. Um, and there, there are some key teaching points, which I will not be revealing here. No, it's underrated. Underrated. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Overrated, underrated. The weave action to mask a play, the weave at the top and a ball screen or some sort of action. I'm going to say underrated, uh, but, uh, you know, it's just kind of like when you're taking a multiple choice test and you, you select D for every answer. And at a certain <laughs> point, you're, like, you're going to get a number right. Uh, I fail this test. <laughs> like, did I just pick too many B's? Because uh, I think I've picked underrated every time, uh, but I'm going. I'm sticking to my guns. I think that weave action is underrated. I think that you can do so much with it. I think that um, like handoffs are hard to guard, like, like whether they're in the scoring area or not. Because that's what you're talking about. Are you talking about handing off yeah. to weave or? Yeah, they'll do. They'll run two handoffs into some sort of ball screen or. It's hard to guard. I think it's hard to guard, and I think that you can create options out of it where you kind of lull the defense to sleep, and you can actually score out of a weave. Not every time, but sometimes you can. So I, I really am a proponent of the weave, for sure. Just for people keeping score at home, you did say that driving the van was overrated, so okay. you're okay. Right. You got one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, just my last one too, Pat, and I just I got to ask this because I think it's fun. But overrated or underrated, Tim, throwing your team out of practice? Oh, that's overrated. <laughs> overrated, okay. That's overrated. I think it's like it probably is really cathartic. I've never done it. But I mean, I'm sure like, get that out of here. Like, I'm sure that feels like, makes you feel like, oh, I'm in control. But I, I just, I don't know. I, that's not how I'm wired. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do it. I'm not saying that people who have done it are bad. I'm just saying, I think that it's overrated and it's probably not something I would do. Well, so that first day you throw your team out of practice, I'm going to get a call from you. <laughs> But I just want to add one more because it's kind of connected to this one, but then overrated or underrated getting a technical foul as a coach. 
Um, I don't want to say properly rated because I guess that that means nothing. But what I will say is I'm probably going to get one. I know that I almost <laughs> got one as an assistant like within the last year. I don't want to get them. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think that getting it can be overrated. Like, I, I think it's overrated. Um, look, I'm a human being. I'm emotional in games. Uh, you know, I, I've had my run-ins with officials. I've never gotten a technical. I'm sure that at some point in my career, I will. Uh, I don't, I won't want to, and I, I don't think it's a, a positive thing. I don't. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Tim, you're off the overrated, underrated hot seat. You, you crushed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Hey, as we kind of hit the back end here of uh, the podcast and, and Tim, thanks so much. This has been awesome. Yeah. This has been really fun. Yeah. Um, so it's thanks fun. for your time on this want to shift to something that I know is near and dear to you. And I think that a lot of coaches will, you know, get a lot of hearing you talk about it's the concept of resilience and coaching and getting through the difficult times and, and continuing to get up the next morning and give your full effort and wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about that personally and, and how you view that going forward now that you're a head coach. Yeah. You know, I've, I've been really lucky in my career that I've been a part of a lot of winning. You know, like except for my first season, every program I've been a part of has finished with a plus 500 record. Every, every program I've been a part of has qualified for the postseason. So I recognize that it's not easy to do. I recognize that that's not the work of just one person. I've been surrounded by some amazing mentors, people, players, people connected to the program, people not. But the crazy thing about this business is that you can still get knocked down. And that might look like a change in responsibilities. That might look like you losing your job after a successful season. For me, the biggest knockdown that I've gone through is the loss, you know, a, a personal loss. My wife and I have, you know, three children. Um, we have a five-year-old named Lee. We have a one-year-old named Makana, and then a little girl named named Josie. And she was born. Uh, my second season at Chaminade and it was a year like that year was it was a year of incredible highs like you know I, I mentioned the the win against Cal in the Maui Invitational but just having a, a child like bringing human life into this world she was born on September 2nd like it it's a day I'll never forget she was born the Saturday before workouts started on Monday so we st- like literally started working out like Monday, September 4th. And I remember like floating into those workouts and I was just on, I was on cloud nine, you know, like it was an amazing energy that I felt just knowing that I was a father to a little girl. We lost her on February 26th. Uh, It's still a little bit of a mystery, but she died in her sleep at the babysitter's house. Um, That was a Monday. We played our final regular season game that year on February 24th, a Saturday. So, you know, I I think looking at her life, it it spanned a basketball season. And shortly after we lost her, I had someone actually say to me, you know, gosh, you lost your daughter, you know, basically you were coaching the whole time. Like you must, how do you, you know, basically the message was like, how do you live with yourself? And maybe a, a weird thing for someone to say, but I heard it and I understood the spirit of it. Like, um, where are you at with your family basically? And I think my take on Josie's life is that her life represented something beautiful and special. And, and, and for me, 
um, it, it's not only the human life that, that she had here on earth, but, but it, but it is college basketball. And like my approach as a man and as a coach has, has been to really embrace that gift, like not only her life and to honor her life, but to do so in being the best coach that I can and, and mentoring young people and, and helping them move along on their journey. And, you know, I'm not perfect. I, I haven't, um, you know, I haven't made the right choice every step of the way, but I'm trying really hard in helping others, mentorship, uh, leadership. That's why I do this. You know, like I've had the opportunity to get out of coaching and, and make more money and it's not what fuels me. It's not what nourishes me. Um, so, you know, her, her loss was shocking. It's something that still affects me to this day. You know, there'll be times I'm driving in the car and a song comes on that reminds me of her and I break down in tears, you know, but I like, I've learned a lot from that. Like the first thing, the first thing that I've learned is like, you have to acknowledge your feelings like you, you ha and you have to embrace them and it's okay to share them with others. You know, like I try not to pour my heart and soul out to the guy, you know, checking me out at the grocery store, but like I, I'm very upfront with recruits and their families and, and my friends about what that experience was like for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's a part of my identity. Like my, my daughter is a part of my life, whether she's here on earth or not. Um, number two, it helps keep her memory alive. She's still a part of our family. You know, my wife and I both say like, we have three children, you know, two, two of them are home right now. And the, the third isn't. So, um, kind of a special note about her. Her middle name is Kai, K-A-I, which in the Hawaiian language means ocean or sea. Um, so when she passed away, her, her ashes were spread at sea, Kailua Bay. Um, we recently had our daughter, Makana, whose you know, first name means the gift. She's our gift. And her middle name is Kai, uh, which uh, again, ocean or sea. So she, you know, my daughters were born before this Cal Maritime job even came about. Like Cal Maritime is literally an institution that is like set on the water, but also focused on maritime activities like, like the ocean and the sea. So it's, it's really meaningful for me to be here. I do feel that level of connectedness. You know, her mom, her memory is something that's really special to me. Like I, I talk to her before games, I, I go on walks and I talk to her. There's a song that I do listen to that reminds me of her. So regardless uh, whether it's, you know, now or 15 years from now or, or three years ago, like I'm her dad and she's, she's my daughter. I think a, a common question I've gotten is like, how did you make it through that dark period? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't easy. <laughs> like I didn't leave the house for a little while. Um, there was a lot of, crying, you know, there was a lot of confusion for my son, but like I, I made a promise to myself and, and the promise was I'm going to get better because of this. You know, and, and part of that is like recognizing what Josie's life represented. But part of it was like when you go through a trauma, like the loss of a loved one, or in my case, the loss of a child, like you're, you can't stay the same. Like you either have to get better or you have to get worse. And if you're not intentional and in trying to get better, you will get worse. Cause like the temptation to succumb to substance or isolation, it's just absolutely through the roof. So like 
I just learned like, you got to wake up, you got to be a dad, you got to be a husband, you got to be a brother, you got to be a son. Like you have to do those things, you know? And it was, it was really painful sometimes, but I just kept doing it. And, um, I think I'm, I'm really fortunate that I have so many people in my life that just like surrounded me. And in some cases just wouldn't let me fall. Like Dan, you're one of those people. Like Chauncey is one of those people. Kyle Milligan at, at um, University of uh, Chaminade who, you know, had played at University of Redlands, one of my great friends. He's one of those guys. Um, there's so many to name, but I, I, I'm fortunate that I have a circle that just like w- wouldn't let me fall. You know, here, here's a great story of two guys that probably don't even remember doing this. But after we lost Josie, I, I just like, I wanted to, I wanted normalcy. I went recruiting, like, and it was a mistake, but I, I went to Cerritos to like do some high school recruiting. And I saw two of my friends in the business there, Brett Lauer and Perry Webster, head coach at Citrus College, head coach at Fullerton College. And I'd worked with them in the past and, you know, they, they came up to me, expressed their condolences. I broke down in tears. And these are two guys, like maybe they're friends, maybe they're not, but they literally escorted me to a corner of the gym. They sat me down on the baseline and they stayed by my side the whole day. Like, they're like, Hey, we're going to help you eval. We're going to keep people away from you, but like, we've got you today, you know? And like, it, it gives me chills talking about it, but like, there's a brotherhood in, in basketball that I don't know you can find anywhere else. And like, I want to be a part of advancing that. And that's why I do what I do. Like losing Josie has been so painful and so hard. It's it's something again that I deal with every day, but I think it is making me better. I think I have been able to reach some people that I otherwise wouldn't have been able to. So I appreciate you asking um, about her. I I really is meaningful me for me to, to talk about her. I know the scope of this was resilience, but really when I think of resilience, I think of, I think of her, you know, and, and I've endured, endured other setbacks, like bad losses, career changes, but it, it pales in comparison, right? Like I have perspective. I really have perspective and I, I am happy to share it. I'm happy to visit with, with people that have gone through a loss or going through a loss. Um, you know, if there's anybody out there that, that does want to reach out to me, whether you're in basketball or not, I would invite you to because I do think I have something that can help. Uh, but then like the reality is like, this is helping is a part of my healing journey too, you know, and, and, and being able to help someone on their, on their path is something that I've already seen has been really meaningful for me. Um, Shannon Rosenberg is the head coach at, at Linfield and, and I don't want to get too personal, um, but, but he has endured a loss and I was connected with him very early on in my in my healing. And he was a difference maker for me. He was a difference maker for me because I was scared to have another child. Like I, I, we wanted to, but it was, it was a really scary thing. Um, he just was able to give me perspective that I couldn't find anywhere else. Uh, and he, you know, he, he kind of in some ways saved my life really. I mean, and he's a dear friend to me to this day. So um, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention his name because he really was, was huge for me. And if I can be ashamed to somebody else, like I, I, it would really mean a lot. 
Tim, first of all, thank you for sharing. I know not an easy thing to, to share. You know, I'm thinking right now in the middle of the pandemic and it's been a tough 2020 and there's a lot of coaches out there that have, you know, had a season canceled or are going through difficult times with a job loss or whatever it is. You talked about, you know, getting to a point where you were going to get better or going to get worse. The, the point where you started to get better, can you remember back on that, whether it was people, whether it was actions you took, whatever it was that you started to feel like you could kind of dig yourself out and start to go forward? Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, I was in a little bit of a fog. You know, it felt like I was in a, in a fog for a long time. My wife, Krista, and I have not done a good enough job of recognizing her during this time. I mean, Krista is an amazing woman, mother, um, you know, that, that old cliche, she's my best recruit yet. I mean, that d- doesn't do her enough justice. She, uh, I'm nothing without her, you know, and, and the fact that she has our kids right now and is raising them and working, I just, I love her to death. So, uh, you know, I I couldn't have gotten out of that hole without her. We made the decision together that after we lost Josie, we needed to leave Hawaii because I was still at Chaminade, but we needed to leave Hawaii. We needed to get back to the mainland. And it was almost like Providence, but like this full-time assistant job opened up at the University of Redlands, you know, like Jim Ducey, the family friend of hers, her grandfather had been the head coach at the University of Redlands. My son is named after him. Like we ended up living in his house. Like we ended up living in Lee Fulmer's house. My son is named after Lee Fulmer. He was a head coach at Redlands. Like I'm the assistant at Redlands. Like it just, it, it made so much sense. And like being back in her network, I think that's kind of when I started to like turn the corner a little bit. Like I just, I felt safe. I felt like she was safe. I, I felt like everything was going to be okay. Not that it wouldn't, in Hawaii, but it just, there was, there was pain there and we didn't have very much family there either. So getting back closer to, you know, familiarity and then our loved ones, um, I think set us on the right path. Um, I've learned patience over the course of the last few years. and, And what I've seen is that everything does happen for a reason. And this is coming from someone that, that lost a child, you know, that's maybe like just in, difficult thing to comprehend, but, um, I think that, that her loss has enabled me to reach others in a way that maybe I never could have done before. And and that's my gift to share. And, 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 um, you know, I, I think about some of the career changes that, that I've gone through and while they were happening, it was really uncomfortable, but looking back, things have worked out for the best. If you're out there, if you're struggling, if you're in the trench, if you're, you know, whatever it is, hang in there, keep waking up, keep fighting, and things are going to work out. I believe that. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure to subscribe to the newsletter for additional insights on this podcast. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass.